Hello everyone, it's August 28, 2018. This week we get a small taste of what it's like to pilot a Starliner, and Kepler's mission is sadly coming to an end. But this show is about to launch, and I know how to fly it, I think, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 173 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Ben. How you doing, David? All right, how you doing? Oh, I mean, pretty good. It was a pretty boring week, but you know, that's... A good thing in this case. <laughs> well, you're getting over your cough, even though you, well, we've heard in the few minutes like leading up to the actual recording, yeah. you've coughed a couple of times into the microphone. Yeah. It's rather loud, but. No, um, that was me turning <laughs> away. That's just how loud it is. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, I also have like a booming sneeze and I've tried to like make it quieter and it just either it hurts or it's loud. Do you have what's called a, well, it's what I call a dad sneeze. Like it's a, it's how all fathers sneeze. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Oh, just the very loud vocal sneezes. The kind that sound like you're almost, it kind of sounds like you're yelling. Just like as much you're as putting you're some vocals into it. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's how my sisters sneeze. So mm -hmm. I call that the dad sneeze because that's how my dad sneezes. So there you go. Weird conversation we're having. I guess we should just go ahead and move on to space flight. <laughs> Let's move on to this week in space flight history. So this week we have some winners, don't we? We have three actually. Yeah. So we have Valentin Frank, uh, Chubby Turkosi, and uh, Liam from space is kind of cool. And Liam's actually in the chat right now. Hi. Um, so this week in spaceflight history, September 1st, 1960, it's the day that Project Apollo was formed. So I don't, I don't want to talk too much about this just because it's like a date that a piece of paper was signed, but I do want to give a bit of a historical, uh, a, a little bit of a timeline here to kind of plant us in history. Um, because the order of events here is actually a little off from what you might expect. So the Apollo Project Office was formed under the Space Task Group. And uh, the Space Task Group, or the STG, was built just to handle crewed spaceflight or, you know, the, the early NASA manned spaceflight program is, is what STG was designed to do. And it, it ended up evolving into something pretty cool. But um, on the 5th of November, 1957, STG was formed, right? Uh, it initially was comprised of just 45 people um, and eight of them were secretaries and computers. So, you know, people who were very valuable, but probably underutilized and um, set off in their own category. Um, on August 21st, 1959 was the first Mercury flight. Then Project Apollo was established on September 1st, 1960. And then May 25th, 1961 was when Kennedy uh, set the moon landing as like the national goal. He's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. And then September 19th, 1961 was uh, when STG moved into a new center. They they were decided that, okay, since uh, since Kennedy wants us to go to the moon, we need to give STG some uh, some more resources and give them a better focus. And so they moved, uh, they, they actually like started looking for a new center to move to. And they ended up picking this place in Houston, which was donated by a university. Um, and that center then became the Lyndon B. Johnson NASA Space Flight Center, which it's it's really weird that like that happened before the go to the moon speech, which didn't happen until September 12th, 1962. 
Um, the Johnson Space Center was established before that. And, you know, even the idea of Apollo, including like what the command module is going to look like, all happened before the witches to go to the moon speech. And it's so interesting that we think of uh, we, we think of history in terms of what the public values and, and what's in the zeitgeist, you know, like w- what the nation as a whole was thinking of and when we were getting excited about these things. When in fact, you know, it, it was this wave that was building up long before that. It just crested over at the uh, We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. So I, I yeah. thought that was a kind of a cool perspective. Well, I mean, you need to have a speech like that because I think it's mostly we're looking at it in retrospect. So at the time, there probably wasn't much of a difference at all. But looking back, we say that was the big moment. That's just how hindsight works when it comes to history. So Yeah, so there you go. Uh, the beginning of Project Apollo. So the clue last week was Delos has a baby shower. So the, the way this works is Apollo, the Greek god, was born on the floating island of Delos because his mother was cursed to not give birth on terra firma. So she ended up finding an island that wasn't actually connected to the seafloor and giving birth to Apollo there. And then later on, I believe it was Zeus actually decided to um, cement it to the seafloor and make it a, a real island. But that's where the clue came from. So great job to the three of you who got it. Um, I knew it was a little bit out there, but but I knew, I knew at least somebody was going to get it. Good job. All right. So what is our clue then for next week? All right. Next week in 2013, the clue is Lego in space. So that's a recent one. That's just five years ago. Lego in mm-hmm. space. I'm going to assume this has something to do with on-orbit construction of some kind. I don't know. Yeah. Injection molding plastic parts in space is what it's about. Well, I didn't mean like that. I didn't mean like making the Legos, although it could be. No, no. It's it's literally Lego being made in space. I don't, I don't know why I'm giving this away so early, but that's what it is. I have to make it clear that that's a joke. Please don't not gas because it's... So that was sarcasm. Uh, so Lego in space, who knows then what that means? I don't know, but uh, if anyone out there thinks they know, then uh, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's talk about Starliner and what we know so far. And we have some cool videos and Chris Ferguson discusses this a little bit. And not to mention Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. So for this segment, we've linked to both Tim Dodd's uh, video on uh, on YouTube and then also to a NASA spaceflight article, um, which is mostly bits taken from an interview with Chris Ferguson. So Ferguson says uh, the cake is baked, um, which I, I would hope it at this point that the cake is baked. He said, you know, at this point, we're just putting frosting on the cake. Otherwise, everything else is done. So what he means by that is, you know, we're still trying to figure out what um, human interactions with things like spacecraft should look like. You know, we have a good a good history of what it looks like when humans interact with aircraft, but spacecraft are are totally different, you know, with very different physical constraints inside the, the capsule, right? As opposed to a cockpit, which is space limited, but at least you have gravity the entire time or, or the majority of the time if you're doing crazy uh, acrobatic maneuvers. But yeah, so, so while SpaceX has designed a touchscreen heavy ship, 
Starliner is no touchscreens, literally not a single touchscreen. Instead, they're using a kind of a classic glass cockpit technique where you have a screen surrounded by buttons, and each one of those buttons are hotkeys that have their function displayed on the screen, and then you can press the button, um, which they... I think they really like the idea of having um, tactile feedback. And not just tactile, but it also apparently makes its own unique sound. Yeah, yeah. he said that there's uh, visual, audio, and physical feedback. And so I think the audio is is the screen probably beeps at you. And, and then another thing that they really like about having physical keys is that you can take up a huge amount of space. If you bury these commands inside of a screen, generally you're having to access you know multiple layers of interfaces in order to be able to find what you're looking for. Whereas if you use buttons, you can take up a lot of room and uh, you can you can just have a, a single button or switch that's hard-coded to do a single function, which is interesting. I, I think that in the future, that's going to be less and less true as we get better and better at having uh, giant screens that are reliable and, and cost-efficient. Um, so, you know, who knows? Maybe this is going to be one of the last cockpits that has real switches in it. Maybe, which would be kind of sad because I, I do still actually like the the actual tactile physical buttons, you know, there is something to be said for that. But we'll have to see how it, they actually perform, quote unquote, in the field. Right, right. So while Starliner doesn't have any touchscreens, it does have uh, a really cool interface that Boeing is trying to keep quiet. They don't want anybody to know what it looks like. And so Tim Dodd got to play with it, but he had to set up his cameras so you couldn't see the screen. And what this what this screen is... Um, it's one of the modes that the screens can go into. It's for docking. And apparently it's got a, a Kerbal Space Program-like interface. So Tim sits down and he goes, oh, okay, I know what this is. And they're like, yeah, I mean, if you've played KSP, like you understand what's going on here. He's like, yeah, no, this is cool. And he like starts reaching for uh, for his controls. So they described it. I, I think Tim uh, described it as it shows you where you are and where you're going. I'm guessing it's got a couple of different views. I, like, I have no idea what it looks like, but I'm guessing like it probably has like a side view of you relative to the docking port with a line showing your trajectory um, and then it's probably got, you know, a head on view and then a top down view. I think it's probably got three different views letting you, letting you see, uh, where you are and what your trajectory looks like. So hopefully we'll get to see that before long. I don't know why Boeing is so protective of this interface at, at the moment. Cause it seems like it's pretty late in the game to still be hiding things. Yeah. I can't figure that out either why they would be hiding that, but who knows? I mean, it might be for... Like, we don't know. It could be for some kind of a... Like an ITAR? Yeah, it could be, you know, like an ITAR thing for all we know. And, you know, the rules and restrictions of ITAR are so strange that there's just no point in sure. trying to understand them. Sure. So it yeah. could be that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, SpaceX showed um, sort of a docking interface that they had mocked up. And I'm guessing it, they're pretty they're going to be pretty similar because like SpaceX has looked very intuitive and by all accounts this Starliner interface is very intuitive and I don't think there are very many ways to represent this data if you're going to do more than just like you know the the Soyuz progress 
here's a camera out the front and a docking probe that we're trying to hit. And so the way that Starliner works, so as it approaches station, right, uh, it has cameras on board that once they are within visual range, it'll actually mm-hmm. do an overlap of where it's projected to be, I guess, in relation to where it actually is. That's interesting. And so that's because this thing, you know, can fly itself and dock with station itself. But the whole time you have a human who is sort of like standing by to take mm-hmm. over if need be. And so it's like they don't entirely trust the computer, you know. So as soon as they can be within visual range, although I guess that that's something that the onboard computer would need to have at its disposal anyway, because uh, that is the best metric is to actually see the thing. But yeah, it's just interesting how they keep people not in the loop, but ready to jump in. Hovering above the loop. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that they said that they're interested in trying to reduce in the future. The analogy that Ferguson used was he, he said in the future he wanted Starliner to be like a rental car where you get in without a safety briefing and you don't have a user's manual in the glove box and you just drive the car and it's like no big deal. And I I think that's, I don't think that's going to happen exactly like that, but I think we're going to get very, very close. Um, It's just interesting that, yeah, SpaceX is going straight for the, okay, sit back, relax, don't touch anything because the computer's better than you are approach. Whereas, you know, Starliner's kind of hanging back. And, you know, if, if we had to guess a couple of years ago, which approach each company would take, I think we both would have guessed that. So, well, so I don't know how it, how it even works with aircraft because I don't fly a plane, but could a pilot get into one and then another? And so long as they're, you know, not too different from one another, it's pretty much the same type of interface. And obviously you have yeah. the stick and rudder and, and all of that. So do you think that there will be a standardized system of flying spacecraft and that once you acquire a set of skills that they would all be transferable from like Dragon to a Starliner, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, like the six degree of freedom problem is solved in a really obvious way, you know, rotation and translation. And yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be pretty, pretty easy. If we want to compare it to aircraft, yeah, you can totally, totally go from one aircraft to another. The things that you're not going to be familiar with are the checklists if something goes wrong. So if you have um, an engine failure in one aircraft versus another aircraft, the checklists are going to have some similarities, but there are going to be some pretty big differences, especially if you're talking about going from, you know, a turboprop to a jet, like the way that you have to handle throttling down or throttling up or, you know, fuel mixtures. In some airplanes, you just don't have to worry about it because the plane takes care of everything. But in some, like you need to be aware of, of what to do when things go wrong. Uh, in the chat, uh, Space is kind of cool, says, um, that, yeah, the guy who stole a plane a few weeks ago, I don't think he was drunk. I don't, I mean, obviously we're, we're not going to get a, a blood sample from him, but, uh, I, I don't think he was junk. I think he was just um, having a having a bad day. But he basically got in an aircraft and flew it around with no problem. He even did acrobatics. Did he have any flying experience prior no, to that? No, he didn't. He's, they were like, okay, so are you a pilot? He's like, oh, I've, I've played enough Xbox games that I'm good. And that, that actually holds up when you watch YouTube videos of people who either um, – have licenses in a very different class of airplane or don't have any piloting license when they're either landing real planes or landing uh, simulations. People are pretty good at this, right? We Our interfaces are intuitive enough that you can get the big important things. But like this guy in, in Seattle who stole an aircraft, um, he didn't know how to get his fuel mixture right. And he was just dumping fuel out the plane basically because... 
Um, he didn't know how to babysit these engines. And that's not that big of a deal when you're flying for an hour around the Pacific Northwest. It is a big issue if you're going to space, right? <laughs> like, you know, if there's something like that, that you uh, obviously a fuel mixture is going to be set by a computer. But, you know, something like that, if you think that if you think that you have to do a bunch of little adjustments that you know, a computer doesn't do in one, but does in another. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be a problem, but I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where people are just hopping in, in spacecraft. I think there's always going to be some briefings or else the spacecraft is going to be so automated that you can't do anything to override those controls anyway. That would be the only plausible scenario where the thing pretty much flies itself. And so you don't have to worry about it except for, you know, like in an off nominal situation, because even now with, like you said, with aircraft, you can fly one and then you could fly the other. But how often does that happen where someone says, hey, take up my plane and you just borrow your friend's plane? I don't know how common with, that is. You have to familiarize yourself with it to some yeah. degree, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sane people as a rule don't do that. Without yeah. <laughs> without somebody being like you, uh, there are plenty of people who will own one airplane, go for a trip in their friend's airplane. Their friend will be like, "Hey, do you want to take the controls?" Yeah, sure. Okay, let's you know make a turn to the left and a turn to the right. Um, but they, as a rule, don't just you know take a plane out soloing that they haven't been checked out on. So one of the things that I was really interested in is that, um, and, and we talked about you know physical interfaces a little bit, but. Um, Starliner has about 40 switches, um, physical switches. Shuttle had over a thousand. And Chris Ferguson, you know, used to fly shuttle. Like that, that's what he's used to. And so when he talks about uh about these human interfaces, he's like, hey, this is gonna be so much easier to fly than shuttle. Like, don't even worry about it. This is so much easier than shuttle. And, and it's like, okay, uh, for me, I think that's really cool. My question is, okay, well, how intensive is it to fly Soyuz? Because this is not a space plane that flies with asymmetric thrust and has what like seven different abort scenarios and it's like that's insane i mean i'm sure that it's easier to fly than a soyuz but i want to see it compared to another capsule design and so hopefully we'll see that as as you know we see flights of this actually go up maybe we'll maybe we'll actually get to hear from people who have flown both my assumption is that it would be easier than it would be significantly easier than soyuz because mm -hmm. soyuz is not automated to that degree but it is automated though like it, there yeah. is a lot of automation but it's so old i can't imagine it's that great to fly i mean if nothing else it's i guess just uncomfortable and cramped uh sam's got some good input he says uh soyuz has landed uncrewed without being intended to do so at launch and then gives us a link to uh soyuz 32's wikipedia page um so we'll go ahead and put this in the show notes um but yeah like i i, I think that these things can just fly by themselves i think soyuz can then more specifically what would your question be because they can both pretty much do that or can do that so you mean having to deal with an off nominal situation where something's gone wrong and you and you have to take the controls well that that and like during a nominal situation like training to fly on soyuz is like four years or something Training to fly on Starliner is going to be much, much quicker. And so I'd like to hear, you know, why it's quicker, like exactly why, you know, if you've got full automation in one vehicle, how come that's different than full automation in another vehicle? That four years of training, that also applies to the Russian cosmonauts, right? Not just the NASA astronauts? Right, both, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, you do have to learn to read Russian. <laughs> so that's oh, one yeah. little hindrance. <laughs> and 
<laughs> yeah, space is kind of cool. It's got another good point. NASA initially wanted to go full automated as well. And like there are stories of Mercury astronauts throwing absolute fits because they didn't right. have a window in the initial designs. I'm like, no, we're pilots. We need to do this. And they, they were mostly worried about their jobs. And, you know, I think their mojo was also on the line. But yeah, it, this is a good point that NASA's wanted to do this for a while. And it's only now that we're getting to the point where Americans are willing to sit back and let an iPhone take them into space. That was an issue. They didn't like that. But yeah, like you said, there was no windows, which would make me feel very uncomfortable, like very claustrophobic. You know, you you don't have control. You don't have like, any kind of visual cue. That's kind of scary. And so, I mean, I can understand the pilots wanting or, you know, mm -hmm. the astronauts wanting to have some control because it's just like when you're in a car and someone else is driving and maybe you're not comfortable with that. And I'm a little bit on edge sometimes. I like to be the one driving because I don't necessarily trust anyone else. Learning to trust a machine to drive you, you know, that can be pretty scary. So I'm not surprised. Okay, well, there you go. That's Starliner. I'm sure at some point we're going to uh, do the same thing for Dragon. But we kind of we kind of did that last week a little bit. All right, and uh, next up, let's move on to Kepler. So Kepler's coming to an end because uh, yeah. so is its fuel supply. Maybe I mean who who doesn't love Kepler? I mean it's such a an amazing uh, second breath or second wind mission. So back uh, on July second, Kepler was in the middle of campaign eighteen. In the middle of its observation campaign, it went into safe mode. Uh, because the hydrazine uh, experienced a pressure drop. So they don't know exactly how much fuel is on board. And one of the tricks that they've been using to guesstimate how much they have left is looking at the pressure. So they decided to institute kind of this low pressure warning um, where the spacecraft goes, hey, I might not have enough fuel to be able to get you all of this data that I've collected back. So let's go into safe mode and make sure that we can safely talk to Earth. Um, and at that point, they had 51 days of observations, which is, you know, a, a decent amount of data that you want to get home. And so it stopped doing its observations and it waited until its next scheduled uh, data dump back to Earth. Well, they planned on getting it into campaign 19 on August 6th. Um, but what we've heard this month is that um, they actually haven't started campaign 19, but they have recovered all of campaign 18's data. And instead of starting the new campaign, they are assessing the condition of the spacecraft, um, trying to figure out if there's another way that they can gauge or, or get a better idea of how much fuel is left. And they're also you know, trying to figure out what their actual, their actual procedures are going to be going forward. Um, because we've known that this is going to happen sooner rather than later. They were kind of looking at these couple of months as being the end of, of K2. And in fact, um, back in campaign 16, they expected that to be the end of, of K2. Um, and they're like, okay, well, you know, after 16, you know, everything's gravy and we can just get what we're going to get. So they've actually not spent a whole heck of a lot of time thinking about what they're going to do at the end of this vehicle's mission. And now's the time to figure that out. So that's what they're doing. Or, or at least they haven't told us exactly what they're going to be doing, but they have said that their highest priority is to be able to return any data they've collected. They don't want to spend a bunch of energy getting the last little bit of mission time out of this vehicle and then wind up not having the fuel to be able to point home and return the data. So, so that's kind of their highest priority. That's kind of the puzzle that they're trying to solve right now. And we're going to see what happens. It's interesting because this is one of the one of the few missions where they don't have to worry about planetary protection. This thing is not going to encounter another planet. And so it's okay to just let it drift. 
Um, and so instead of having to crash it into, you know, Jupiter or Saturn or something, they can just say, okay, let's get the last ounce of data out and let this thing, let, let this thing die. It's trailing Earth, right? So it's in a heliocentric mm -hmm. orbit behind Earth. So, yep. and I guess it would stay more or less in that same orbit. I mean, you think that it at some point maybe might cycle back around and, you know, catch yeah. up with Earth or Earth? I, I think it's pretty much impossible for it to not cycle around and re-rendezvous with Earth. Um, but just because it gets near Earth doesn't mean that it's actually going to... I don't think it's in close enough of an orbit that it's actually likely to to swing past our planet. I, like, I don't think that we're going to have another, uh, what was it, IC3, which like actually got captured by the moon for a hot second. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's going to happen. So it'll pretty much just drift forever. Yeah, well, we'll see it. We'll see it again eventually, but it's it's not it's not a threat. Poor Kepler, man. Ke I mean, if people don't remember, Kepler is the spacecraft that lost uh, its gimbals. Actually, ooh, I gotta put a link in the show notes. So Scott Manley uh, actually just did a summary video about why Kepler's gyroscopes failed, um, because the company that built them had a number of gyroscopes fail all in a row. And it's really interesting. It has to do with electrical discharges and the bearings. Um, and so all it took yeah. was, I think, using ceramic bearings that aren't electrically conductive. But we'll put that in the show notes um, because Kepler is this, uh, the spacecraft that had its gyroscopes fail. And so they ended up extending the mission by using the solar wind to to help point the spacecraft. So that I, I'm hoping that sounds familiar to everybody. We're not going to go into it too deeply, but like this is that spacecraft if you don't recognize the name. All right, time to do some short and sweet. Let's do our first one in what would that be, Ben? All right, so Strata Launch is expanding its range of launch vehicles. And this is written very optimistically by David. <laughs> the launch provider announced that they are developing a family of launch vehicles, all of which will be flown aboard its massive plane and released for ascent to orbit. Among the new vehicles announced will be a reusable space plane that will initially be used for cargo, but a later variant may be able to carry astronauts. The first of these new launch vehicles, a medium launch vehicle, for satellite delivery to Leo is currently scheduled to launch in 2022. That might be a bit optimistic. All right. And uh, next up, Oppie should be waking up any day now. Uh, the Opportunity Rover. Yep. The dust storm raging on Mars has begun to subside. At its peak, it had an opacity or tau of 11, but that has since dropped to a tau of 2 which should allow for enough sunlight to start charging the Opportunity rover's solar panels. Uh, project manager John Callis at JPL said there's a better than 50-50 chance that Opportunity will wake up, though it might still be several weeks before they hear any response from the rover. He stated that as long as the solar array is at least 50% clean, the vehicle should be charging by now. And apparently they're all standing by their phones and whatever. Mm -hmm. and waiting. They're waiting for word, I guess, any day now. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, this week, I guess we just have a we have a couple of cool videos. I don't. Yeah. Know. This is like <laughs> this is the let's share our favorite YouTube videos. Right. Well, so so one of them. So the first one is uh, Dustin from Smart Every Day did a video on the Parker Solar Probe, which we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. And oh 
boy, this was like kissing my fingers, like perfect video where he got to talk to some scientists and some engineers and like got to see a model of the uh, the Faraday cup that's, you know, actually going to be sticking out from the edge of the spacecraft. And like he built like a little model with his daughter. It just it's so good. So I, I just had to throw it in here. And um I'm going to give a hat tip to Nero bro in our subreddit who uh, pointed this out. And yeah, it's, it's super good. So go watch it. So our next video, Momo two, remember that rocket, the Japanese launch vehicle that failed, uh, what, just a couple seconds after liftoff recently, there was a uh, release, some very good high speed camera video, like close up high speed footage. Yeah. Close up. It is Momo in slow-mo. Yeah. I oh, just God. thought of that. It's actually two angles. One that's a low angle and one that's a high angle. So it's sort of like at the bottom of the, launch tower and then at the top of it i think it's at a thousand frames per second so you're seeing it at that speed and you can clearly see what other people saw and what i did not see at first mm-hmm. but everyone else caught when it happened which was that little bit of flame coming out from the side of the engine and so that's not normal what was it you had suggested the problem was i don't know i mean like looking at it now like it looks like it's probably the combustion engine or the combustion chamber burning through but like the jet switches sides, which is really weird. Yeah, I saw that too. I mean, you don't get a very good view of the other side, right? But you can see what looks like flame coming out from the other side of it, right? Yeah. Like almost 180 degrees on the other side of the engine. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like to me. It looks like there might be a secondary burn through spot. Uh, it, it looks like, like a lightsaber. For real, it, it looks like Kylo Ren's lightsaber. Takahiro Inagawa, who is the CEO of the company, which is Interstellar Technologies, he said that from the high-speed camera angles that it looks like it might be a, or that the cause of the failure was a side jet thruster. Yeah, that almost sounds like a vernier thruster, right? Maybe that's what that means. I mean, this might be a problem with the translation because I'm guessing he didn't say it in English. Yeah. And so maybe that's what's going on here. But I'm not sure what is meant by that. So I guess that might be the leading theory so far, a side jet thruster. I mean, it was clearly a thrust from the side, but I wasn't aware that there was any side jet thrusters. Yeah, plumbing for RCS maybe, but I mean, it was so directed. Well, I'll tell you one thing. This slow-mo footage is definitely going up on our website as one of the banners because it's really cool. Like adding the failure is actually kind of cool. And then finally, just a reminder, we are accepting applications to, uh, we're looking for a new host on the show and we've had some very interesting people get in touch. Um, and we've had a number of people say, Hey, I want to do this, but I don't have the time. And I'm just like, no, yeah, find the time. Cause you're cool. So yeah, do, uh, do give us a shout. You can shoot us an email or a tweet or whatever you want to do. It's super not intimidating to to apply for this. Like, yeah, I mean, look at look at David and I. We're just we're just schlubs. Like, come on. If we can do it, obviously you can. So yeah, um, shoot those in. I think we'll probably be looking some, you know, this next week, and then after that, we're going to make our decision. I think. And uh, if this isn't your cup of tea, recording every week, we do have something else coming up that really is going to be cool. It's hopefully going to be a, a new thing that's a, a regular thing, and that's going to be really easy to contribute to. Um, so if this isn't your thing, just hang on a sec. We'll have another thing for you. We'll <laughs> have multiple things. Yeah, it's going to be good. All right. And this week, no upcoming space flight events, no launches. So it's just a, yeah, a launchless week. So we're just going to go ahead and deorbit then and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. And check him out at ronaldjenkins.com. And some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground 
control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that's all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.